Hello and welcome back to the Gentleman's Journal podcast. I'm Joe Bullmore, the editor of Gentleman's Journal, and our guest today is Maro Itoje, the England and Saracens rugby player and Freeze London committee member. Here are the Maro stats, because I know sports fans love facts and figures. Maro has won four English Premiership titles with Saracens, three European Rugby Champions Cup titles, three Six Nations titles, and has been selected for two British and Irish Lions tours and, of course, played in one World Cup final. That agonising defeat, you'll remember, against South Africa, which we talked about, in fact, a little bit today. Off the pitch, Marrow is a huge collector of African art and has curated an exhibition with Sotheby's recently. Eventually, he tells us he'd like to open up a gallery of his own We've just got to decide on a name first. So, in a highly enjoyable episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, Maro and I talk about the origins of his Pearl nickname, the fragile state of Premiership rugby right now, the psychological tricks of England head coach Eddie Jones, and the last days of Roger Federer. Enjoy! But before we begin, I'd love to tell you very briefly about the Gentleman's Journal shop, our new men's style destination full of the independent brands that we love. You can find it at shop.thegentlemansjournal.com. That's shop.thegentlemansjournal.com. Head over there for special, unique releases from a fine curation of brands and plenty of picks and pointers from people in the industry who really ought to know. I'm sure you'll find something you love. Mario, thanks for joining us in what is Fitzdares Club for an episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast. Just then you said it reminded you of your boarding house. It did, yeah. I spent two years at Harrow and it's given me that Harrow vibe, <laughs> those creaky, creaky floors, you know, old English paintings on the wall um, <laughs> gives me that type of vibe. But no, thank you for having me. Are these happy memories? No, oh, happy memories. I had yeah. two very good years there. Um, you know, I loved, I actually loved school. I think it's a formative period in your life. Yeah. And it was, it was a great time. Yeah, I like school as well. School gets a bad rap sometimes. I think it's a pretty fun thing. You're with your friends, you can play quite a lot of sport. You don't really have that many responsibilities. Yeah, you really don't. You, <laughs> your, your life is um, almost stress-free and yeah. the stresses that you're worried about, you know, aren't really too significant. For me, I was quite lucky, you know, my, boarding school initially it was with all of my best friends so it was like having a sleepover we used to we used to be in this big dorm like eight of us together so it's just a sleepover with your best friends every day wow um yeah, good times cool. well maybe we'll start on uh start in your childhood and what were you like growing up were you very sporty were you playing all sorts of different sports or was it rugby from an early age no no i came to rugby relatively late I started playing rugby at 11 but before that football um i'm of nigerian heritage and football is by yeah. far the dominant sport in that culture so football was played a lot I used to go to the park a lot with my cousins I used to go to the cage play football there with you know, random other kids. Um, but growing up, did a lot of athletics. Uh, when I got into secondary school, did a lot more basketball and stuff. Yeah. So quite quite varied with it when it came to sport. Yeah. And when was it that rugby started to kind of inch ahead of the other ones, I suppose? Well, I started playing rugby at 11. Um, yeah. I moved from a non-rugby playing prep school to a rugby playing 
secondary school and it was the main sport it was a dominant sport so whilst I did play other sports during that time um, rugby was always that mm. was the most important mainly because that was the culture and environment yeah. that the school set but I guess when I you know really started taking it quite seriously and dedicating quite a lot of time to it was when I joined the Saracens Academy and that was roughly around the age of 14. And who were your heroes growing up, either in rugby or away from rugby? What did you want to be when you were kind of 13, 14? Well, 13, 14, I guess if you, at that age, you know, rugby was huge. And, you know, I wanted to be, I guess if you asked me then, I could have said rugby player, but I also could have said a lot of different things. I could have said, you know, either you know a basketball player. I could have said I don't know a politician. I could have said quite a lot of different things. Who were your political icons? I yeah, quite like I the idea of a thirteen-year-old. So if that's a more interesting question, um, <laughs> so one of my big political heroes is Kwame Nkrumah. Okay. So he is the first president of Ghana. He led Ghana through their independence uh, struggle. Um, you know, he was a big Pan-Africanist. He was, you know, a giant of that kind of generation. Um, and Ghana was the first sub-Saharan African country to gain its independence. So especially as I grew older, started to learn more and more about yeah. you know, that type of thing. He was definitely a big, big hero of, of mine. And his politics always has stayed in interest even now. Yeah, so I studied politics uh, undergrad. Um, and even till this day, you know, politics is still a massive interest of mine. It's like what I always jest with people that one of my favourite shows is the 10 o'clock news. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, I like to keep up to date. I like, you know, I find what's going on now, yeah. like, incredibly interesting. Definitely. But not, not only you know, what's going on in this country. I have a deep interest in what's going on back in back in Nigeria and other yeah. African countries. I was recently in in Kenya and uh, they had their own political presidential yeah. elections that, that were going on. And the guy who wasn't the favourite, um, William Ruto, I think his name was, ended up winning. And <laughs> I found it funny. When I was driving through Nairobi, you'll see posters of their political campaigns and uh, Ruto's slogan was um, every hustle matters right <laughs> so, uh, it was a little bit different to get Brexit done but yeah, I guess yeah. it, he, he ended up winning so had similar <laughs> similar outcomes yeah the 10 o'clock news right now is is kind of like a horror show it's pretty scary stuff it's not great you know it's not the most pleasant time to yeah. you know switch on the news but rugby itself has been through some some pretty tough times in the last week Worcester Warriors have gone into administration wasps are also in trouble as a premiership player what's it like inside the premiership right now it's yeah. a kind of an unprecedented situation almost yeah it's crazy to be honest you know I think I'm quite fortunate to be a part of a club like Saracens who have you know, very strong backers and yeah. they're very ambitious and they're investing in the club and you can see it through, you know, some of the stuff that our club is doing with regards to our new stand that's, mm. you know, recently been unveiled. Um, some of their long-term projects in terms of the training ground and eventually they want to build two more stands on either side of the 
pitch so I'm speaking from a very fortunate point of view but generally speaking you know rugby is is in a relatively fragile mm. place at the moment especially in this country we probably have too many teams we probably play too many games but truly and honestly the only difference between you know Wasp or Worcester and us or any other club in the premiership is that we have owners that are willing to pay the deficit yeah. because most if not all rugby clubs don't make any money yeah. if anything they lose millions millions of pounds so to keep afloat you need a benevolent owner yeah. and um, you know that's that's why rugby is in a, in a fragile space at the moment and it needs to do a whole measure of things mm. to make it a much more sustainable business and it's it's the 29th of September and I was reading today that there was a question mark whether the the players were going to get paid at Worcester, whether they even you know have a salary today. Do you have friends in those clubs? What's it like for them having their kind of whole career potentially completely uprooted? It's a crazy time, yeah. genuine. It's a crazy time. I can only imagine what they're going through. To to a certain extent, the whole Premiership went through a similar kind of experience during mm. the COVID, where everyone was pretty much forced to take a pay cut. Yeah. So we've gone through a sort of period like that. However, what they're going through is immeasurably worse. Yeah. Um, you know, my I can only have, have my deepest sympathies goes towards their players and, you know, people who have families, people who have dependents, people yeah. who have mortgages on top of everything else that's going on in, on a macro level in terms of cost of living, energy yeah. prices, all this now mortgage rates and interest rates. So, yeah, um, it's, it's it's truly tough. a crazy time. Yeah. To go back to your own own rugby journey, you said that things got serious when you kind of joined the Saracens Academy. Do you remember your first men's game when you made the step up into the big boys? Yeah, I remember it very very clearly. It was, I think I was about seventeen years old at the time of the Saracens preseason game against um, Rotherham. Oh, really? Okay. And I don't know how much you know about Rotherham, but Rotherham They're are tough. known for being a gnarly team, big old men, like yeah. old school kind of rugby, tough forwards. Um, and, you know, even even back then, I guess I was kind of an abrasive player um, and I never really liked to take a backward step. No. And I remember <laughs> then I confronted one of their players, he was like, you know, just doing his job, but and I confronted <laughs> him about it and I pushed him. <laughs> and then he pushed me back. Then you know when you feel like the weight <laughs> of someone's hand <laughs> on yeah, your chest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Luckily, one of my older teammates, who was about, you know, 33 or something, came and backed me up. <laughs> Otherwise I could have been in a little bit of trouble. Um how old were you then? You must have I was been 17. 17, yeah. okay. So these were proper men. No, these you, were full grown men. You weren't and quite. I was, I was at 17, I was very much a skinny, a skinny boy. Really? So, um, what did you do? You, you, how did you kind of step it up so you could compete with those? Well, it was a process, isn't it? So, throughout my academy years, I was, I was on a serious like weight gain kind of phase where I was just looking to put mm. on weight. I remember at its peak when they wanted me put, to put on weight at 
a relatively quick pace. I was eating up to 5,000 calories a day. How do you even find that many calories? What's the, is it just lots of butter and bread? And it, I was eating everything and anything. Like, <laughs> I was a very skinny uh, second row. And especially for, you know, for forwards. You, yeah. And the position I'm playing, second row, type five forwards, you need to be, you know, physically able to handle yourself. Otherwise, you know, you can't really do anything. So I was eating everything, literally everything. Some, Most of it was good. Some of it was probably really? bad. But quite um, nice to know that you, you don't have to count the calories. Well, it was, but generally eating 5,000 calories a day, at the end of the day, you're, you're not eating for enjoyment. You're no. not eating because you're hungry. You're eating just to get the calories in, and it's 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 not it's not great. It so actually takes all the fun out of eating. Does it? Oh, that's a shame. Mm. What was your breakfast? Oh, on this, on I can't even like remember. But it was it was more the not necessarily I would eat ridiculously large meals. It was just the the consistency of it. Yeah. So I have breakfast two hours later, have another meal, two oh hours God. later, have another meal. Um, then probably have a big meal post training yeah. and just bit, like have a couple horrible protein shakes, some <laughs> super mass protein shakes. But luckily I don't have to do that anymore. Okay. It worked out. It worked it out. Did, it, did, it did its purpose. So you mentioned that abrasiveness earlier and yeah, your persona right now is very different to your persona on the pitch in some ways. You're known as someone who gets quite in people's faces. You get very hyped up. It's very, very enjoyable to watch. Are there two different sides of Maro, do you think? Uh, people always say this to me. Um, I guess so. I guess <laughs> playing rugby isn't like a, a natural thing in terms of definitely not like throwing yourself into people hitting no. people at full pace getting on all these weird positions in like the scrum or the ruck or like getting tackled so and it's a very emotional game probably more emotional than most other sports and for that reason you have to be in the right mindset to play mm. and by its very nature, it's a very confrontational team. Nine times out of ten, the team that wins the physical battle with the team that that wins the game, and especially as a forward, you know that responsibility rests majority of the time on the forward. So, being in that position and being that type of player, I, th I guess you, I have to like get myself in a certain zone. Yeah. Have have to have a certain mentality and try and enjoy the nuances of the game as yeah, much as possible. Definitely. With flankers in particular, and I know you, you play sometimes as a flanker, there's kind of a, a sense that they know the dark arts, they know the rules better than anyone else that are willing to push them. Do you, do you see yourself in that role, that kind of traditional kneel back, someone like that, who's who's clever, very clever with the um, the... the yeah, of the game. I, well, I like to think so. <laughs> um, a lot of other people would probably beg to dis disagree. <laughs> um, I always like to, you know, push the laws as far as I can. Yeah. Um, sometimes I get that wrong. <laughs> sometimes I get that very wrong. Um, but as much as possible, I try and push it to the limits. Like, I try and build relationships as much as possible with the referees and try and work with referees because at the end of the day, I'm not trying to pull a wool over their eyes. No. I just want to play the game to 
to the extremities of the, of, yeah. the, of the law. So I want to work with them as much as possible. But, you know, it's a fine balance. You know, my my competitive nature sometimes tips over and it's, it gets hard to find that balance. But um, I guess it's a con continual process for me. <laughs> Absolutely. You mentioned having to get yourself in the zone. A question I've always, always had for professional rugby players is what are you listening to when you step off the coach and everyone's got the huge headphones on and you're walking past the press in your tracksuits? You, you know, for me, it's very, very varied. So I've got a playlist, like I've got like a hype playlist yeah. where I've got, you know, a whole load of like, I have, I have a little bit of Rick Ross on there, a little <laughs> bit of Future, I have a little nice. bit of the Migos, um, I have a little bit of Gunner. So I have a few like, fairly upbeat artist and musician on there. But sometimes the music I choose to listen to before the game, I decide by what I need for the game. Right. So sometimes you're so emotionally aroused that you actually need to calm down a little bit. So if if that's the case, then I'll probably listen to some some old school Nigerian yeah. praise and worship, like joyous, happy music, but just to like calm me down a little bit. Um, if I need to like, if I'm feeling a little bit low and I know I need to pick myself up, then yeah. I'll listen to that hype playlist. If I just need to stay relaxed and fairly, you know, even kill, maybe some a little bit of 90s R&B to okay, get the nice. soul going. Very, very nice. I want to stick on the kind of psychological stuff for a bit because you obviously played in the 2019 World Cup final, which is a great game. Sadly, didn't go the way we hoped. But I, I've always wondered what it's like in a changing room before what will be, for many people there, the biggest game of their, their life. Is it very tense? Is it relaxed? Do people joke or is it incredibly serious? Um... For that game, it was fairly tense. I think we knew the magnitude and the opportunity. Obviously, yeah. as you've alluded to, it didn't go our way. But, you know, I guess when there's not often when I, fortunately, I've been able to play in a few finals now. And there's not often I, in the, in the environment and the changing room before the game where it's too jovial in no. finals. Sometimes in league games there are, sometimes in... You know the knockout stages before you get there, but often when you're when you're at the final stage, there's a, there's a sense of steely seriousness yeah. about everyone, and everyone knows what we have to do and how we need to do it, and you know what it's going to require. And often, you know, you're playing a final, is 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 going to be against another good team. It's mm. going to be against a team that is could easily be the you know the winner if you're not up to scratch. So. For me, anyway, that kind of danger like sharpens me and yeah. keeps me keeps me focused. And what did Eddie Jones say? What's left to say at that point? If you've done all the preparation, all the work, what what can he say in the final seconds before you walk into the tunnel? Uh, there'll be a few pointers. Um, Eddie normally likes to give us a few one, two, or three max points that just to focus our mind and focus our energy towards what we need to do during the game but they tend to be relatively simple and clear because you know yeah. when you when you then go out there and run in front of 8,000 or having many you know you can't consume you can't no point having a too yeah. long of a speech or essay before before the game so he keeps it short and just a few points of what we need to do then the rest is for us to yeah. take care of the business. Eddie Jones is known as a particularly kind of clever operator psychological person who treats that side of the game, I think, as important as the physical sometimes. 
what's he like as a as a person to interact with? He's he he can be incredibly funny, but he can also be very serious. Yeah. What's your experience with yeah, him? Yeah, just that he um, he's very jovial. Yeah, he's very jovial. He likes to you know if he was here now and the team was here, he'll be walking around, cracking jokes with yeah. people, taking the mick out of people. Some people brave enough will take the mick out of him too. <laughs> um, so he's very jovial in that in that sense, but he's also very serious about the team. Yeah. I mean, like all his energy is towards the team doing well. He doesn't really tolerate anything that's not for the betterment of the team. So he's very clear with that yeah. in in that regard of like what he expects from his players, what he the standards that he tries to set. Um, he himself, like he, he doesn't sleep. He's on it 24-7 I could text him at 5am in the morning he'll text me right back he um, you know he's very committed to yeah. continuing improvement and, and getting better you mentioned the, the kind of roar of the crowd and 80,000 people do they prepare you for that side of it because surely there's nothing you can really do to I don't know prepare for that feeling the adrenaline yeah it's um, you kind of need to you know be there to kind of understand it like you know you can watch a game and be like oh that's how it would mm. be but it's very different when you're in when the middle you're, when you're in the what, middle. what was the first kind of massive game what was your first kind of england cap like when when the crowd roar went up oh um so my first cap was against italy away stadio olimpica which was cool great experience but i don't know if you, how familiar you are with that stadium, but the the There's pitch track, is quite far yeah. away from from the crowd, so it doesn't tend to get that noisy in there. And then I think the following week was either Ireland or Wales, mm. and both those games were pretty intense. Um, but I guess the best atmosphere I've seen at Twickenham, two games come to mind straight away. The first one being. We played New Zealand in 2018. I was at that game. Yeah. I was hoping you were going to say that because it yeah. was electric. It was. I was kissing people I didn't know <laughs> when Sam Hunter scored. And, and for, like, you know, that's a game we probably should have won. Yeah. Um, it didn't quite go our way, but Twickenham was roaring. It was crazy. The second game was last year's Autumn Internationals when we played South Africa. Yeah. And we came, you know, they had a lead, then we came back to win the game. And... Honestly, if I I felt as if the air was shaking, <laughs> not even the ground, the That's air great. was shaking yeah, when we yeah, took yeah. the lead. It was such a you know, incredible atmosphere and, and you know, their the opportunities and their the special occasions which makes, you know, all the all the work yeah. worthwhile. And afterwards you must be still completely buzzing for that I mean that the rest of that day at least. Is it kind of difficult to sleep but you still hit, have that kind of crowd noise in your yeah, ear almost um, yeah it's quite difficult the day or the night after the game mm. uh, generally speaking most players have some caffeine or you know to take some like energy gels before the game yeah. so You're and you have it. the natural arousement of the game and the emotions of the yeah. game and so the night you know that night is always difficult falling asleep for me um but, you know, that's the challenge. I think with rugby and with most professional sports, but definitely with rugby, it's uh, what I try and do anyway is not get 
too high with the highs and too low with yeah. the lows. Otherwise, you know, you're you're slave to the the emotions of mm. of profession of professional sport. You're slave to the roller coaster ride of professional sport. Yeah. And you almost have no say in how you feel and how you operate, uh, which is easier said than done. And naturally, you will have some highs and lows, but as much as possible, try and stay within a bandwidth. Um, and with that mindset, you keep everything, everything is measured and everything can be, um, you know, dealt with in, yeah. a, in a mild, or not mild, but in a clear manner. Yeah, yeah. And do you have any kind of, Rituals or mantras or anything before the game? I don't really. I don't have any rituals before the game, and the reason for that is I don't want to be dependent on yeah. any. On, on if anything. it goes wrong, then yeah, it's in so, your head. Yeah, you know, there's you know every player has a slightly different thing. Lucky socks, put right sock on before left, or you know, strap this arm before that arm, or you know. <laughs> Who's got the most elaborate one? In um, or Saracens? I can't remember their rituals. Too well, like Carl Sinclair is a is, is an interesting human. <laughs> you know, he's he's just wild. So, and he's very particular about he okay. does all these like stretches and warm ups before he <laughs> before he plays, and he he has like a tub of deep heat wow. that is put on his on his back or on his legs before every game. So he's quite elaborate. I think I think Johnny Johnny has quite a few. He's very professional. Johnny May. Johnny May. Yeah. yeah, he's very professional with his recovery. So I know he loves to get um, certain things, things right. right before the game. Yeah. But yeah, I, d I just don't want to be a slave to no. any of that kind of stuff. So I try and avoid it as much as possible. Yeah. Do you take inspiration from things outside of rugby? Are there any kind of like books or, I don't know, films or even art? I suppose we're going to talk about art, but that, that helps you in your kind of approach to the sport. Well, yeah, there's there's a few things, you know, there's loads of, you know, um, you know, Eddie actually just sent me a podcast to listen to now which about leadership and yeah. um, there was a coach there from the Milwaukee Bucks who's now moved to uh, Charlotte Bobcats or Charlotte Hornets, I think. Yeah. Um, and he was talking about his experiences with Michael Jordan, what he's like as a leader. He's talking about his experiences with um, Giannis, what he's like as a player, his attributes. Um, and I'm a big documentaries guy. So right. I love watching documentaries. I love um, like getting an insight into how people think, how they behave. Um, so there's always loads and loads of things to take away from what sort of doc what ones can you recommend for us documentaries wise uh i watched the uh, tiger woods tiger woods yeah. doc on sky that was very good uh let me think outside of sport um there's a few uh, it's just general or just or anything yeah well, I, um, <laughs> what's in your netflix queue is the question i guess yeah i've been watching a few royal ones recently oh there's, really there's one on diana yeah princess diana which was good um, on Sky again. I've given them a lot of shout outs. <laughs> um, I watched one on Iran. Yeah. The Iran, the, the Iran Revolution, 1979. Wow, um, so almost was, everything, really. No, uh, yeah. I To be honest, I actually probably prefer political do <laughs> political yeah. documentaries more than more than sports documentaries. When you get a good one in politics, it's, it's very good. There's yeah. one on Obama's, which is also very yeah. good. 
So you mentioned um, the royal family there. How did you feel about the Queen's death? It feels like a question that's always going to be interesting. Yeah, so I was driving home mm. and I'm a, I'm a big fan of LBC. And yeah, me too. <laughs> I was, it was, what time was it? I don't know, let's say roughly about 1.30ish. Yeah. Because... No, it could have been one thirty. It was, must have been earlier than that because James O'Brien was on. Um, so it, anyway, James O'Brien was He's on. He's ten to He's one. 10 yeah, to yeah. One, yeah. <laughs> so I, and it was the announcement on the energy of how the government were yeah. going to support, you know, energy due to the Ukraine war, cost of living, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they were talking. They were analysing what they were talking about in in, in Parliament. Um, I was listening to. Uh, Liz Truss's speech. Mm-hmm. Then Keir Starmer came on. Keir Starmer was giving his um, retort to the speech. Then James O'Brien said that, oh, I, there's been a bit of a weird atmosphere that has flown through through Parliament. Um, I'm not going to speculate on what is actually going on, but it seems to be, you know, the the physical reactions from the MPs are are a bit concerning. Wow. Then he said that Nadim Zahari rushed to Liz Trust to give her a note. Then she rushed out the chamber. Then at the same time, Angela Rayner was trying to get to Keir Starmer, but Keir Starmer was speaking, so she couldn't get to get to him at the same time. Wow. To wait for him so to you're listening to James Blind reporting on this in real time, yeah. and you're just driving along thinking, what's going on? Yeah, so my initial reaction was, from the way they were talking and the seriousness of yeah. how he sounded, I thought it was like a terrorist attack. Yeah. Then my next thought was, oh, maybe it's the Queen. And it kind of sent a little shudder through yeah. my through my body. Um, it, you know, she, she's obviously you know, been a mainstay in mm. pretty much all of our lives for such a long time. And yeah, it's just sent a shudder through my body. And in a way that is not, it's not necessarily normal for yeah. when famous people yeah. pass away. Um, then obviously the news came out and, and it, it tended, that was the case. So it was just an unusual, unusual time. Yeah, it was very, very odd. Yeah, it's kind of, I don't think anyone's really worked out how anyone feels about it. And especially with a new king, everything's got to change. New banknotes. New banknotes, new crazy. coins. New, new stamps. New, I don't use new stamps. Anthem. New I, anthem. I, do I still, I still go to the post office oh, every now and again. <laughs> what are you sending? You sending letters? Thank you letters. <laughs> uh, you know what? It's every now and again. Like you have to send like form to the bank. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Like and I, I just, I just, I just bought a whole load of stamps. Um, <laughs> like. I don't even know, maybe like two, three years ago, just in case that yeah. eventuality happens. Because it's always so jarring when you have, you have only one thing to send and you have to go to the post yeah. office to, to <laughs> send it. So, You're yeah. very sensible. I'm always scrambling around for a stamp. The other big kind of ending, obviously not on the same scale as the Queen's death, was Roger Federer's retirement. Did you watch the last match or the highlights of that in the Labour Cup? That was last weekend. Yeah, I didn't actually watch it. Um I've actually seen the match, but I've seen the reaction to yeah. it. Um, As a kind of sportsman, does that make you think about your own retirement and the kind of poignancy of of, of sports careers? And you're nowhere near that, of course. Yeah. But well, Roger Federer, you know, as an athlete, as a man, yeah. as a human being, he's if there ever was an athlete which was class personified, yeah. it's, it's Roger Federer. He's he's, great. he's 
well and truly an impressive individual. But retirement is something that I think about quite a lot. You know, I'm not the type of person that likes to just leave it to chance and where well, like, whatever happens, happens type of thing. I think with such an important transition, which will which it will be in my life, um, I think it's important to plan for. I think yeah. it's important to you know get things in place for that eventuality um you know and impermanence i have read um this i got this from will smith's autobiography and um, and he said impermanence is a fact of life like yeah. you you know your life will always change things are always you know come to its end nothing is forever and you need to be comfortable with that and you know, prepare for those moments that those transitions come. And the thing about preparing for it is even when you prepare for it, it's still difficult. So imagine if you don't prepare. Yeah. You're in a double whammy. So it's, you, I think you have to put things in place. Yeah. I mean, it seems ridiculous to talk about your retirement when you're just turning 28 and you're going to be, you know, in the prime for hopefully a lot longer. But do you talk to other players who've retired? Is there kind of a, a setup in the game that, that helps people with that transition? Well, I guess depending on, you know, what club you are, mm. you know, certain clubs help more than others. We have the players' union who, I guess, are there as, a, as an aid if you need yeah. that kind of support. But... Well and truly, it's it's down to the individual. You know, you the individual needs to put things in place. And whilst you know, I am a supporter of clubs, unions, etc., helping players in that transition. It's you know, players need to be the the leader of their own lives mm. and plan for what comes next. And speaking to other players who have retired, I always find it interesting, like engaging in this yeah. kind of conversation with them. No one really says it's it's easy, mm. um, and you know some of them miss the rugby, um, but most of them miss the camaraderie. Definitely. Most of them miss being in the changing room. Most of them miss like being part of the team, working towards something, um, which is I guess bigger than themselves or buying into you know an objective which is perceived to at least be bigger than yeah. themselves um and i guess you know not many other walks of life will will give you the same thrills no. the same highs and lows that you know professional sport gives you but i guess the the challenge is to find something else that gives yeah. you that in a different way so what do you when you imagine mara at 45 what do you see him doing That'll be my last year of professional rugby. <laughs> no, like forty-five. So, so um, yeah, so I've, I'm doing I'm doing a bit of study at the moment. Yeah. Um, and the way I see my life unfolding post-retirement is almost having like a portfolio mm. kind of career. I think after being defined by the outside world as a rugby player for so much of my life. I kind of like the idea of not necessarily being defined by the thing that you do. Yeah. So with that, you know, I have a few different like business interests and ideas that I want to want to pursue, um, you know. What sort of thing? So ranging from art, uh, yeah. like my dream one day is to have an art gallery, an African art gallery here in London, hopefully other places around the world. Um, 
interested, as I said, other business opportunities, um, property. Um, I'll always be connected to the game yeah. um, in some way, shape or form. But I don't want to be a coach. I don't want to be a pundit. Um, I want I would, I would like to maybe in some way help the game grow post-retirement. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't mind being part of the executive side of rugby, but not necessarily in the performance side at this yeah. stage anyway. Uh, quite interested in quite a few philanthropic um, endeavours. Um, I'm in the process of setting up uh, a foundation to hopefully address some of those issues there. Um, so yeah, it's so just a wide and varied yeah. thing. And I kind of like the idea of doing a little bit of this one day, doing a little bit of that the other day, and kind of you know splitting my time between all those yeah. interests. I also would like to spend a bit more time in Africa post-retirement. I would love to spend you know three months of the year in Nigeria, or you know some other other places in, yeah. within the continent. You're represented by Rock Nation, which is Jay Z's kind of athlete management thing. He's a man who's done done that kind of portfolio career. He's got all sorts of plates spinning. Have you met him? I have had the pleasure of meeting him. What's he like as as, a, as an individual? He's almost as you would expect. He's super suave, <laughs> super cool, very, he seemed very relaxed, very laid back. Um, you know, I met him at the pre movie premiere of what was, what was the film? I forgot the film. Anyway, I met him at, <laughs> at that place because Rock Nation, I think they co-produced or funded the yeah. film. So there was here in London. And yeah, he was, you know, very classy, very nice, very, very friendly. Um, but it was interesting because I walked into a room and it almost seemed as if everyone was like vying for a little bit of his attention. Wow. Um, and there was some, you know, some big hitters in that room. You know, though he, it wasn't like it was like, so it was like there was some like fairly serious people in that room and like, it looked as if everyone was like really? wanting a bit of his time. So it was, it was now, but it was a great meeting. Yeah, of course. So let's speak about the art then because you're on the committee of, of Freeze London, which is obviously one of London's most established art fairs. How did that come about, that relationship? And on the face of it, art seems so far away from the rugby pitch in many ways. Yeah, um, I like to see myself as a multifaceted human being. <laughs> Quite right, yeah. Um, well, you know, I've, I've loved art for a little while and particularly my passion lies with, with African art. Um, in particular, it's you know it's, it's 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 a form of art that really speaks to to my soul. Um, I love the vibrancy. I love the dynamic nature of it. Yeah. Um, it's so spirited. Um, and as time has gone on, I've become deeper and deeper into like the art world and art industry. You know, I've worked with Thuzzabees on some of their curated sales. I've done a few art exhibitions. Um, and, you know, being a part of Freeze is just another great opportunity to speak or, you know, raise the platform of some of the, the art and industries that I'm passionate yeah. about. And, you know, as you said, you know, the, the reputation of Freeze speaks for itself. They're probably the biggest art 
fair in the world definitely one of the most prominent ones anyway mm. um so it's it's i think it's just a great platform for me to speak and you know hopefully highlight some of these african artists some of their work some of these african galleries and just help raise the you know the the profile of african art as a whole yeah. um across across the world and you've got a big art collection yourself what how does that start what was the kind of first bit that got you into the art buying bug yeah so when i in 2015 i was designing like my first apartment i was decorating my first apartment and i decided that i want to like decorate the the walls with some african art so i went around london trying to find art galleries that sell african art couldn't really find any um and the ones that i did find were so small and completely out of my budget at the time <laughs> so i couldn't there was no way i could afford it so I, I explained this predicament to my mum and she was like, oh, don't worry, when we go to Nigeria, we'll go to the the art market in Lagos. Um, so yeah, eventually the end of that year, went, we went to the art market in Lagos and I was just like, whoa, this is amazing. Like the depth, the the amount, the, the colour, yeah. all of what it was, was truly special. And I, think, I guess the reason why I guess I've been attached to African art in particular because I felt as if it talked to my soul in a way that other art forms haven't. Um, what does that mean, talking to your soul? That's beautiful. Is it kind of like a phys physical, visceral reaction when you're well, standing in front guess, of something like that? I guess, like, probably due to my background, due to my heritage, um, you know, I can see myself within the art yeah. and I feel as if the art is a is a close representation of who I am. And, you know, I kind of get the nuances of the art. And when they refer to certain places or they refer to certain traditions in the art, like, and I can, you know, relate to that. Mm. And I guess, like, being a child of the diaspora, it's almost like, because I didn't grow up in Nigeria and perhaps I didn't, um, you know, I didn't go to school in Nigeria, but I guess it's almost a longing to, f yeah. to feel connected to the place, even even if I'm not physically there. I was getting a bit into a therapy session. No, it's great. It's great. <laughs> but um, I guess that's that's, that's 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 the connection. Yeah. And who are the kind of African or Nigerian artists that you think we should definitely have on our radar? If you had to give us, it's going to be difficult. Five. Oh. If we can shout them out. Yeah, that's um, that's tough. I'll give a couple. Okay. Um, Adubi Maidas. He's yeah. I've got one. Of, my auntie actually gave me one of his pieces. Um, he's a very talented young artist. Um, this guy is quite popular now, but again, Femi Oluwole. He's he recently did the portrait for Tatler, which was oh, yeah. for the Queen's Commonwealth. So Queen's Jubilee, sorry, uh, for the Tatler's Commonwealth edition. He was also very good. Another guy who's, he's not really on the come up because he has arrived and he's, uh, you know, selling out wherever he goes. But I always mispronounce his name, so forgive me. But Amako Boafo, a Ghanaian yeah. artist um, who is unbelievable. I don't have any of his works, um, but hopefully one day I'll be able to acquire some. Uh, so I guess they will be they'll be my top three yeah 
So is the dream, you mentioned earlier, do you see yourself at a certain point having a physical space that's that you're kind of choosing what's on the walls and it's yours? Is that the dream? Yeah, that's the plan. That's definitely yeah. the plan. Um, I think, you know, African art has the most scope for growth, yeah. um, especially when you compare it to other continents of art. And I think now... In the West, there's a realization, a stronger appreciation yeah. of African art in a way that wasn't here 10, 20, 30 years ago. So I think the consciousness in and around art is, mm. is picking up and increasing. So that's definitely the, one of my goals and ambitions. Um, and what yeah. would you call it? Maro Toje Gallery? Uh, no, I've, 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 I've actually... Um, I'm doing this alongside, I have like a business partner okay. in this kind of project. The name coined so far is Akoje, Akoje okay. Gallery, which is a mixture of both of our names. Oh, good. Yeah, it sounds like it exists. It's a great <laughs> yeah, name. Yeah, speaking to, into existence. Yeah, yeah. So I know you, you write poetry. <laughs> Why did you laugh at that? Um, because I feel as if this has been a little bit misconstrued. You wrote um, a poem. I... I I, I I I wouldn't go as far to call myself a poet. <laughs> I have written poetry before, um, but I feel as if you know it's something that has perhaps been a little bit okay. overplayed. Yeah, I would like to say that I'm a budding young Shakespeare, but <laughs> I don't think uh, that would be accurate. But it's quite. I read a profile of you. I think it was a Square Miles piece mm. where they opened with a poem. And I was reading it not knowing that it was your poem. And I thought it was very good regardless of whether you'd oh, written it or thank not. Thank you, thank so you. So it was kind of, yeah, emotive, very inspiring. I can imagine it being on the wall of a of a changing room or something before you stepped out maybe, <laughs> if there was going to be a rugby connection. But have you, my question was going to be, have you ever done kind of uh, visual art, anything like that? I haven't. Uh, well, not since I was in not since school. school. Um, <laughs> and at school, art wasn't my strongest subject <laughs> but however you know i feel as if i should give it a go again yeah. um i feel as if i should find the time to try and give it a go uh because you know with all due respect i've seen some art that is <laughs> <laughs> that isn't really i, I think i can like paint on par with that so if that's the level then you yeah. know i think i could you know stroke a couple brushes and see what i can do well, we look forward to that. Yeah, the gallery, the poetry, maybe not, and the painting as well. So you said at the start that this um, room reminds you a bit of, of boarding school. What would you say if in one of these chairs, quite creepily, a 13-year-old Marrow at school was, was sitting here? What would be your kind of one bit of advice for him? You know, people ask me this question a lot, like, what would you tell your younger self? And I genuinely wouldn't tell him anything because <laughs> I I feel as if life is all of you're shaped by your experiences yeah. you're shaped by um, your successes and your failures and that then helps shape you into the person that you are today and I think if you were to stop anyone mm. from experiencing those failures or successes unfortunately I don't think I've messed up that major in my life so far fingers <laughs> crossed um, I think you've so, done okay What's if you had to point to one mistake or something you regret is there anything that you can think of um, not particularly there's obviously there would have been like I guess some 
you know, situations that I could have handled better. Um, there'll be some, like, either with friends or family, some, you know, situations that I could yeah. have been a bit more delicate or I could have seen it from a different point of view. But in terms of, like, grand scale, like, mess-ups, mm. um, I don't think I've done too many of the of them there's some things I could I would have perhaps done a little bit differently yeah. but you know so far I've lived a fairly disciplined life so far so good I like that answer that you wouldn't tell them anything because that's probably yeah they've got to learn on their own 13 mm. year old Mary's got to do it right so before you go you're wearing a, a pearl on your earring um, yeah and your nickname of course is pearl for anyone who doesn't know, where does where does the pearl nickname come from? Where does the pearl nickname come from? So <laughs> it's kind of a weird story, <laughs> but um, so I was nineteen. I it was my first year at Saracens uh, on a professional basis, and it was the Christmas social. So for the Christmas social, you know, Saracens rented out some bar in London, and you know, I went and I decided to wear like this creamy pearl like turtleneck um one of my teammates saw me i was like oh look at it so pearly so pearly so creamy oh the pearl they started calling me the black pearl then they started calling me the black pearl then they got a little bit pc and said oh let's shut it shut it down just to just to the pearl um then people have been calling me the pearl ever since and you know as far as nicknames go i'll take it <laughs> i'll take it because it's pretty there's, good there's a lot of other nicknames that rugby players tend to give <laughs> other rugby players that tend to be awful so yeah you know, i have a nickname for someone <laughs> one of my friends at the club <laughs> which is cheesecake okay um, who's that um are you allowed to say? I don't even want to embarrass him. <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's a Welsh lad, I'll put it like that. Okay, fine. Um, but I say cheesecake because he's a little bit chubby. <laughs> he okay, like... I know who you're talking about. <laughs> he's a little bit chubby, you know, he's a little bit... Does he like cheesecake? Oh, everyone loves cheesecake. Oh, yeah, I, I love, cheesecake. love cheesecake. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's brilliant. Well, Pearl, Marrow, thank you very much for joining us. It's oh, been a lot of fun. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.